This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. With how professional the Mexican But are we ready? I don't think. Reformed friends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. Welcome to my house, currently at the top of Nancy Pelosi's iTunes list. How does this affect the still unsigned, unratified, uncertain U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement or the Canadian-Mexican-U.S. agreement or whatever it is we're calling it these days? The new U.S.-MCA faces a congressional vote next year, and it needs majority support in both houses. The Democrats likely won't want to pass anything with President Trump's stamp on it, so they could block the deal. I'm Richard Miles, host of 35 West, a podcast from the Center for Strategic and International Studies about the 35 countries of the Western Hemisphere. And joining me once again, via the magic of the internet, is a world-renowned Canadian expert, Christopher Sands of John Hopkins University. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Richard. Nice to be back. So, uh, Chris, you noticed that I actually spelled out CSIS because I didn't want any of our Canadian listeners to to think you're being interviewed by the Canadian Intelligence Service. <laughs> I, I think Canadians never associate me with that much intelligence. <laughs> okay. So just to be clear, it's CSIS, the think tank, not CSIS, the, the spy agency. So Exactly. So, Chris, uh, where, you know, where are you at the moment? I, I said we're doing this over, over the Internet. Um, so tell, tell our listeners where you're actually speaking from. Well, as we speak, I'm in Calgary, um, part of a, a, a trip I'm taking to meet with Canadians to talk to them about the implications of the midterm elections uh, in the United States on November 6th and what it means for the relationship going forward. Wow, Chris, you read my mind. What a perfect segue, because that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. So, <laughs> it, it's almost <laughs> like we had this in advance or something, but uh, right, the uh, the big news, of course, uh, for the moment in, um, for a number of different reasons, and we'll sort of go through them during the podcast, but the midterms on November 6th, and the fact that the Democrats will take control of the House of Representatives come January 3rd. So uh, obviously lots of speculation about what they're gonna do in terms of their agenda, whether that's gonna be investigations, even possible impeachment, et cetera. But for our purposes, of course, we're focused on on what's going to happen or what may happen in the U.S.-Canadian relationship. The top of that list, of course, is the new NAFTA, uh, or again, whatever whatever we decide to call it. Um, and so here's what we know. We know the president still has fast-track authority. That was renewed last year. So it's still going to be an up-or-down vote uh, one way or the other. Um, but of course, Democrats could hold out in exchange for changes in the bill or hold out for something else. So uh, you've been talking about this probably nonstop for the last 48 hours, Chris. So what, what do we, what do you think? Um, and what have you been telling the Canadians? Well, well, I think it's, it's bad news in some ways for the Canadians, because I think they felt that their long NAFTA nightmare was over. They come up with an agreement. And while I don't think the USMCA is considered perfect from the Canadian perspective, they made some concessions that they honestly wish they hadn't made, there's a pragmatism here that the U.S. relationship is so important that uh, best to get this settled and move forward. And we've seen that the consequences of the USMCA negotiations in terms of uncertainty have dampened not only foreign direct investment in Canada, because Canada's market is, is a decent size, but, but not 
quite enough to justify the kind of uh, big FDI contributions that they need to keep the economy going without access to the U.S. guaranteed, which is obviously a larger market. But it's also been the case that many Canadian businesses have lowered the amount of inward investment they've been making in their own operations, just hedging their bets a little bit uh, to make sure that they're able to compete in in the economy. And the terms of USMCA, it's in many ways, and I know some of your listeners will have looked at it, it, this isn't a simple agreement where we simply agree to get rid of trade barriers. It's a much more com- convoluted and complicated agreement where the details matter. And at this stage, we've seen uh, a kind of draft text which is still being finalized, but that uncertainty remains. Now with a change in Washington in terms of the composition of Congress, uh, there's a concern that we, we still don't have that final, final text. A lot is still in play, and that uncertainty could continue to be a drag on the Canadian economy this year. So um, officially, at least, the initial reaction from the Canadians uh, is like, you know, this is not that big a deal. We're not that worried. On, in fact, on November 7th, Ambassador McNaughton, the Canadian ambassador to the United States, um, said, uh, quote, I don't see any real negative implications um, to a Democrat-controlled House. And he even went on to say that, well, you know, look, on certain things like labor and environmental standards, the Democrats may ask for changes that Canada would actually welcome. Obviously, he's not speaking for Mexico on that. Um, is that is that true, or, or is that the sense you get from talking to Canadians and um, both official and non-official that you know whatever uh, whatever the Democrats may request, it's not going to be that big an issue to final ratification in the U.S. or or in Canada for that matter. I I think there are two things that in it in Ambassador McNaughton's statement. One is an attempt to address the anxiety that many Canadians are feeling about what this means for their future. As I mentioned, the uncertainty has been a factor that's held them back a little bit this year. And so you need to send a message that this is not the end of the world. We don't have to start over and we can move forward. But it's also true that the Trudeau government is is a a liberal government. That's the party label. It, it, It really is on the center left. Uh, of Canadian politics and, and to, compared to the U.S. Is, is a bit further to the left, obviously, than even, uh, obviously, than Donald Trump, but also further left than, in some cases, the Democrats themselves. And the Prime Minister earlier in the negotiations, uh, earlier in this year, came forward with an argument that Canada wanted to pursue a progressive trade policy so that agreements reflected Canada's progressive values. This is in part because while the business community, a little more conservative, is in favor of free trade, we haven't seen that from, say, some ordinary Canadians and civil society groups who are worried about women being left behind, they're not as involved in trade, Aboriginal people, that is First Nations, as the Canadians call them, not participating in this modern uh, economy. They're concerned about uh, how they can make an agreement that really advances environmental objectives and so forth. On all of that, I think the Trudeau government looks at Democrats, not necessarily Nancy Pelosi and the older leadership of the Democratic Party, but, but some of the newly elected people and feels no fear that, if anything, their contribution would make the USMCA uh, potentially more compatible for Canada, not less. So, you know, Canada during the negotiations had uh, mounted a very impressive lobbying effort, not just in Washington, but also in the individual state capitals, US state capitals. 
is that are we going to see that again in the next few months? Are they going to sort of resurrect that uh, full court press in terms of talking to individual representatives uh, in Washington, but also fan out and go back to some of these state capitals and reiterate the same points in terms of uh, you know various aspects of the trade relationship that are important to those states? Absolutely, I, I've been telling uh, audiences here this week that that really it was an amazing effort that the Canadian government put on. It's not just that they reached out to politicians at all levels in the United States, but even more importantly, I think what was was fascinating was that they reached out to um, people with data and they talked to members of Congress, senators, about exactly how much Canadian foreign direct investment was in their, their districts what was um, the employment impact, how many jobs were being created by trade with Canada, and what the exact uh, amount of trade you know, was, uh, so, that, so that members were, got an education in exactly how important the Canadian economy is. Now, Canadians typically aren't big uh, tutors of their own horn, and this was an unusual effort. It took a lot of data compilation for the Canadians to do that, uh, but they came up with this wonderful uh, message, which wasn't about pass or don't pass USMCA. It was more about, you know, even though it's hard to sometimes pick out where Canada's impacting, that it is having an impact. With new members, it's a chance to say that all over again. And we have many of the people who were elected in the U.S. midterms who are new politicians, who are people who are coming into political life, certainly at the federal level for the first time. And so I think most of them will welcome a little bit of information and data from Canada uh, in order to get up to speed on, on how important the Canadian relationship is. There's another thing which I think is also on Canadians' mind, uh, minds collectively, I guess, and that is there's still some questions about that strategy. When, um, when Donald Trump uh, and Robert Lighthizer chose to negotiate with Mexico bilaterally late in the USMCA negotiations process for five weeks, there were, there were all sorts of rumors that Canada might be dropped or marginalized. And so Canada reached out to some of the people it had briefed and said, we'd really like you to speak up and express your desire to keep Canada in the agreement. Uh, that's a very simple ask. Some members did step up, some senators, some members of the House, but there was an awful lot of silence. And I think part of that was was members on the Republican side in particular who didn't want to cross the president. Uh, they didn't want to be on his tweet uh, list for negative comments, especially those who were running for re-election. But there were also a number of Democrats who did the same thing. They They just didn't want to get out ahead on trade, in the U.S. politics at this particular moment, I think both Republicans and Democrats are unsure of what the politics of trade are now in the United States. There's there are different competing theories. In 2016, when President Trump ran for office, uh, there were a number of voters, we could, might characterize them as blue-collar um, maybe union member voters who crossed over, traditionally had been Democrats, crossed over and voted for Donald Trump. And there are Democrats who think, well, Trump just borrowed them or stole them for one cycle, but we can get them back. And there are a number of Republicans who, who are asking themselves, are these the new Republican base members? And 
with both of those sort of thoughts in their mind, neither Republicans nor Democrats, or a large number of them, were willing to really get out ahead on trade issues. That's a problematic position for them to be in as we go towards ratification or approval in Congress of these agreements. And so I think the Canadians will retool their strategy a little bit. They want to be able to make the case not only that Canada needs to be in the agreement as an important, but they also want to make sure that that members have the courage to step forward in favor of trade with Canada um, because so few actually did, which has, I think, been a disappointment a little bit to Ottawa. Right. So let's explore that just a little bit more, Chris, uh, in terms of, you know, there, there are at least two ways we can look at uh, the events of the last uh, you know, year, uh, year plus, and that is that this was sort of a, a one-time um, disruption, that it was a, a, a you know, a, a particular, you know, a obstacle for Donald Trump, and he wanted to, to just get rid of the old NAFTA and do a new NAFTA, and that once it's finally ratified, which it will be, you know, we're done, we're back to, we're back to the, to the status quo. But there's another way of looking at this, and I, I think you saw, in fact, I know you saw the, the article by, uh, by Hank Paulson on November 6th. Um, um, I'm pretty sure you saw it, because I, I saw it off of your Twitter feed, uh, Chris, so um, I'm hoping you <laughs> were In which he sort of says, you know, we're actually maybe in a new, a new era here of things that we used to think were settled in terms of risk, uh, judging risk in various markets, for instance, uh, particularly United States and North America and Europe, the, the assumption there was that the risk was pretty low in terms of like political risk and regulatory risk and all those sort of things. And there's the emerging markets where you had to be careful. And now, you know, we've seen that that has sort of been upended in terms of these certainties that we thought we knew about uh, long-term uh, political relationships and trading relationships are really thrown into question. And so both governments and businesses have to grapple with that heightened sense of risk in areas that we we didn't uh, think so before. And just one specific example he gives about sort of using, and this is directly applicable to what we're talking about, uh, the the security angle on on tariffs, like the, the Section 232 uh, aluminum and steel tariffs is obviously still a big sticking point with Canada, but that's being used in a way that we, it has not been used before. Really, you know, nobody really believes this is about national security. This is an, an, an extension of a, of a, a trade um, barrier. So just thought, you, you know, comment on that a little bit. Um, are we, is this a new normal and that uh, it, particularly in the Canada U S relationship, as you said, as Canadians are beginning to think that, gosh, maybe, <laughs> maybe things really have changed and we're not this, um, this steadfast ally or at least neighbor that, that we thought we were. Well, I, I think, thanks for bringing it up because it, uh, I think, I think that issue allows us to take, the Canada-U.S. relationship and put it in a much more global context. It's sometimes easier to see things when they're gone. Uh, you appreciate things once they're they're gone. And for for you and I, and I think many of your listeners, we grew up in a, a period that was marked by a post-World War II consensus about the global economy, about security relationships, about values. And that World War II generation that had come through what was really a, a very rough beginning of the 20th century where you had not only World War I and World War II, but a lot of upheaval, revolutions, uh, changes around the world. They were committed to stabilizing the world on the basis of good principles. And what the U.S. advanced in those days 
the Bretton Woods institutions of the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the creation of the United Nations, the, uh, the building of a trade system initially uh, with the 1947 Havana Summit that was supposed to launch an international trade organization, failed, created the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which for six rounds liberalized trade around the world up into the Uruguay round, which of course was signed just two years after NAFTA came into effect. This was, this was a, an era that I think historians will look back on as very distinctive and very special. Where we are today is that the underpinnings of that consensus have been questioned. And I think they've been questioned by, in many ways, the baby boom generation in the United States that challenged the authority of, of what their parents laid out. In a lot of ways, the, the authority of the old traditional family, of churches, of sort of the role of morality in politics. Uh, and they've given us a very unsettled world. And Donald Trump has really brought that contrast between the old world and new world into sharp relief. As a transactional president, he's not satisfied with the old deals. He's not satisfied with the agreements that stood before. He wants to make them, quote unquote, better deals. But his principles, unlike the founding, uh, that sort of post-World War II generation, are not grand ideas that everyone can say, okay, well, that's a good value. They're much more transactional. How can we put America in a better position vis-a-vis our allies? It's that uncertainty which which most affects countries like Canada that are middle powers. Um, They don't have the ability to set rules internationally by themselves, but instead work with others to try to build and shore up the international consensus. We probably had no other country that was as supportive of the post-war order that we were trying to build as Canada was. At the end of World War II, uh, in many ways, Canada was still a colony of Great Britain. Uh, Not formally, but it still was very much part of that mentality. Its foreign service was very much British trained. And they came out of that as almost the protege of the U.S., uh, a country that was a founding member of NATO, a founding member of the U.N., really at the very beginning of all these institutions. And so what's disorienting Canadians looking uh, at the world that we're in now very much echoes what what, uh, Secretary Paulson had to say in that op-ed, which is, we're not sure what the principles are, and in the uncertainty, we worry uh, about the potential for conflict. Americans may feel confident. We have a tremendous military. We have a a lot of built-in advantages, a huge domestic economy, and so on, that we can endure this turbulence, this chaos, this uncertainty until things settle. But the Canadians are along with us for the ride. And uh, this may be a little bit uh, something I think some of your listeners might not think about, but Canadian companies are are world-class. They participate in a global economy um, and uh, they do so despite all the trade agreements Canada signed with other countries, largely through the U.S. Canadian manufacturers sell to American manufacturers or American brands that then take those products all over the world. There's almost no market around the world where Canada is not participating, but often under the umbrella of an American multinational or an international multinational. So the U.S. becomes their channel to global markets. That was true for manufacturing for a long time. Think about the auto industry in particular. But it's also now increasingly true for Canada's agriculture, where Canadian farm products are then folded into processed foods and sold globally by American and European brands, or now energy. Canada's had real trouble building pipelines to bring natural gas or uh, oil to 
what they call tide water, the, the water's edge, where they can be put on boats and sold uh, or ships and sold in Asia and in Europe. That um, has been a real problem for Canada. Their only foreign market for their fossil fuels has been the United States. And of course, U.S. production is up. We don't need their uh, supplies. So they need to reach global markets. Uh, two years ago or three years ago, when, um, when Justin Trudeau was elected, uh, he promised that he would work on some of the big pipeline projects and help get Canada going uh, in the global economy on energy. Today, as I sit in Calgary, where energy is, is really the dominant industry, both oil and gas, um, it looks as though Canada has no market but the U.S., and the U.S. is demanding almost a 50% discount off world market prices when it does buy Canadian oil and gas products. They need to get to the sea, but their failure to build pipelines to the, to the coast today is leading many people, particularly here in Calgary, to say the U.S. is our route, even on energy, to get to global markets. So this is, this is what underpinned the USMCA in a lot of ways. Canadians saying we can't afford to lose access to the U.S. market because the U.S. market is our gateway. And maybe for Americans or, or other listeners to the podcast, this is something that should be humbling to us, that we're not only looking at our America first role in the world, but that for many other countries, we're the gateway, we're the guarantor of the stability on which they rely, whether that's the stability of trade rules, the stability of alliances, the stability of, of an international system. And right now, as things seem to be coming apart and old, reliable uh, sort of touchstones of the international system are being shaken, our allies are, are like the Canadians, are, are feeling quite disoriented and quite concerned about, about the world and want desperately to have this conversation with the American public. But we're not really talking to foreigners, we're talking among ourselves. And that's, that's something that's going to leave uh, many people wondering about whether American leadership will be there for, for the next generation to come. Uh, Chris, you make a lot of really interesting points here. You know, n number one that I hadn't really thought about before is this, I this idea that Canadian national identity, the modern national identity, um, is very, very new, actually, you know, only since the end of World War II, as you said. And so th this relationship that we think goes back a couple hundred years does technically, but really, in reality, it goes back, um, you know, only so 70 years or 70 plus years, in fact. And the second thing that I think... Um, I thought about as you were you were explaining that a little bit was that this reliance on institutions probably doubly uh, surprising and disappointing for the Canadians maybe is that this came in the form or came from a political party in the United States that had been known was known for uh, its uh, adherence to institutions and adherence uh, adherence to pro processes and sort of. Uh, love of tradition or at least respect of tradition and, and in the form of Donald Trump all of those certainties have been upended from a from the the political party you would think uh would be the least likely to say you know we don't need NATO we don't need NAFTA we don't need a lot of those post-war institutions that have been built up um so very uh great insights uh, one final question uh Chris catches up to date on Canadian politics. Uh, we, we had a, there are a couple of important provincial elections recently, and we know you've got some uh, national elections coming up, parliamentary elections uh, at the end of next year, right? End of 2019. Who's, who's up, who's down? What's the current conventional wisdom, I, I guess, on, on uh, the parties? Well, it's, it's interesting, and it's something that I think um, makes Canada quite distinctive. Where you're seeing in many countries, you can think of the U.S., but also of Germany or Great Britain, there's a real uh, 
disconnect between the voting public and the establishment and a concern that maybe populism is necessary to challenge uh, an establishment that has been buying into global trade and, and a vision that the public doesn't like. In Canada, if you had a Venn diagram uh, to show the overlap or potential overlap between liberals and conservatives, the two big parties in Canada, it's almost a total overlap. They broadly do support uh, similar policies, free trade with the U.S. and so forth. Not only that, there's very little contestation of that consensus on the part of the Canadian public. And as we head into an election, which is anticipated with a fixed election date for October 21, 2019, the the conservatives and liberals are offering similar visions and it's more for many Canadians about which leader do you like the best? And Justin Trudeau has a uh, sunny personality. Uh, his opposition leader, who's a bit younger than he is, uh, Andrew Scheer is also a very positive personality. They agree on quite a lot um, uh, in terms of policy. But what we're seeing, what we've also seen in the last year is Canadians at the provincial level beginning to vote for um, alternative leaders outside the mainstream. Ontario was the, was the first in some ways to go in this direction, electing uh, Doug Ford, the brother of Rob Ford, the late Rob Ford mayor of Toronto, as their premier. And he has shaken up a lot of what Ontario's done. We saw um, at the beginning of October an election in Quebec that brought Francois Legault, who represents a brand new party, a coalition for the future of Quebec, that has, not been, has never been in government before, but is now governing the province with a fairly substantial majority, uh, all but wiping out the old Parti Québécois uh, and some of the smaller parties in, um, in Quebec. Uh, we have a couple of split decisions. British Columbia um, in 26, 2017 had an election, and in that election uh, ended up with a coalition government between the NDP, which is the Social Democratic Party, and the Green Party. Similarly, uh, just a few weeks ago, New Brunswick had an election in which the Liberals were able to form the government, but again in a minority situation in which they rely on a smaller party to keep them in power. All of this suggesting uncertainty. We expect this spring, Alberta, where I'm at now, uh, will have an election and uh, the current government of Rachel Notley, the first NDP government uh, in Alberta in more than a century, uh, is... Um, is not favored to be reelected. So there's a lot of turmoil beneath the surface. And if I can bring this around, um, this picture of consensus at the federal level, but a desire for change at the local level, think about where the USMCA plays into all of this. What Canadians, I think, want more than anything else is a deal so that their market access is assured and the uncertainty is ended, as we talked about at the beginning of the, of the podcast. And if you look at the Trade Promotion Authority Bill, uh, the 2015 legislation that guides this process, the Trump administration, even after the signing of this agreement, which we expect at the end of November, still has to deliver a number of reports before Congress can pick up uh, the agreement and begin the process of, of ratification. Uh, the Democrats controlling the House have an important bit of leverage in this process now in that because the USMCA is, is what we call a money bill. It affects the tariff. And so it, it has to be introduced in the House before the Senate. Now you can move along a parallel track and have the agreement approved in both chambers, but the House is where it has to start. And the Democrats are now in control of the start of that ratification process. Some people will remember that when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, uh, as Democratic Speaker of the House, 
previously, she introduced a rule change that undermined the fast track authority under which that agreement had been negotiated in order to stall ratification of the U.S. Columbia agreement. And that delayed our ability to close that agreement to the great distress of the Colombian uh, Colombians. So now people are concerned that Nancy Pelosi might even pull a trick like that, or she could simply delay the introduction of, of the legislation in order to get a concession from the Trump administration on something in the agreement or maybe something outside, for example, treatment of uh, the dreamers, the de deferred action against childhood arrival, uh, young people who, who came into the United States illegally, but as children uh, by, brought by their parents. There are a number of issues that you could see that could be in the mix and control of the house is great, but it doesn't give the Democrats huge control over Washington. So these bits of leverage could be quite important. Now put yourself in the Canadian government's point of view. They have an election in October. At the best, the approval process, which requires 45 days before committee and uh, and then another 15 let session days in front of the whole House or the whole Senate, at best you could complete that process in about three months. And at worst, it could go as, it could go to six to eight months. As we go into January, uh, the Canadians are, are really concerned that this Congress will not be able to to ratify the USMCA before Canadians go to the polls. And that uncertainty will be tough on the Trudeau government. It will create anxiety for the Canadians. It might lead to a very different electoral outcome. So as we focus so much about, on our politics, they have consequences for the Canadians. And I think this is one of the ways in which the midterms will continue to have a sort of uh, ripple effect, not only at home, but also abroad and in U.S. relationships around the world. That's fascinating, Chris. I hadn't uh, focused on that either. And it sounds like from what you're saying that uh, the trade agreement USMCA will play a much larger role in the Canadian elections than the NAFTA negotiations played in the Mexican relations, which said not very much at all. It, it was all different issues there, but uh, this sounds like it might be different in the Canadian context. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and it's partly because when Mexico uh, was holding its election, we didn't have an agreement, uh, but the feeling was that uh, come what may, Mexico was ready for a change. Now that there's an agreement within reach, the Canadians would just like to, uh, to end the agony <laughs> and yeah. have, a, have a sense of certainty going forward. Well, as we've said before, if, if the agony ends, then probably so do our jobs, Chris. So, you know, we, we, we have to declare our bias here for sort of an, an endless discussion on, on this topic. But, you know, <laughs> Once again, uh, thank you for joining me remotely this time from a great distance and uh, look forward to having you back in Washington. So safe travels. Yeah, thank you very much, Richard. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.